Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Now, before we get into it, I'd just like to point out that keep your eyes on out for another merch drop coinciding with this episode of Wild Chicago featuring Piping Plovers. This will be a cross-listed fundraiser with Bob Dolgan, who has been doing the Monty and Rose feature films. So keep an eye out on that. We'll be putting more stuff on our social media. But for now, let's just get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk conservation, education, and fascination. My name is Matt, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm CJ. And just like we said last week, you might have noticed that John isn't here. So we'd like to put that out in the open in case you haven't heard last week. John has moved on to bigger and better things, and we appreciate all his work and wish him the best going forward. But, you know, can't let that hinder the birdie bunch podcast so cj how have you been outside of you know the podcast i've been good i've been really good actually um a couple of things that have happened in the past few weeks um last week me and friend of the podcast maggie warren got a chance to go out to montrose beach and which we're going to talk about a little bit later and uh we're going to talk we we're going to talk about monty and rose a little bit later in this episode and we got to see the four chicks that they had, which is super, super exciting. The day that we went was actually the day that the fourth chick hatched. And it was a really special story that the, you know, the Piping Clover Watch people were telling us that Lincoln Park Zoo got involved and took the final egg because it wasn't hatching quite right. They took it in, they incubated it for a couple hours, and then it hatched in the morning of. Mm-hmm. And it, they, they set it out there, and we came that morning to see it. And it was so small and small, so cute. It was so wonderful. So we're going to talk more about piping plovers later in this episode, I'm sure, Matthew. Yeah. But that was something I was really excited to see last week. And then today, I was uh, at a, a bird walk with the Feminist Bird Club in Chicago, which was amazing. Mm, that's fun. Got oh, a, a red-shouldered club. hawk lifer. Really? Yeah. Good for you. Wow. I think that's, that's... my 200th bird. <laughs> that's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's thank a... you. Is a good milestone. You're definitely right that we'll be talking piping plovers later. Um, and that's such exciting stuff to see such a rallying cry for these birds in such a not associated with nature kind of place, which is what we're going to break down today because cities, you know, especially Chicago, really aren't void of wildlife and animal experiences. They're kind of full of them. So I'm really cool. excited to talk about that. And our. I was going to say, <laughs> what have you been up to this week, Matt? Uh, lots of work. I don't really have much to report. It's been busy. This is really the one breath of fresh air I've had in about the past week or so. In the last week, I have stepped in a yellow jacket nest. I have hit myself with a weed whacker, and I have also stepped on a nail. In the you're having spinning. a rough week. I know it's it's you know it really all started um, this winter when I fell off of a ladder, and I think everything's been really downhill since. So really? I've fallen down a ladder since then. Yeah, I'm hoping that's the culmination of that because if you saw my Instagram post, you know, I had a nice little tetanus shot or as my brother likes to call it a Tetris shot just because to make completely <laughs> sure. So not much wild things to report. Did get to see and hear common loons up in Wisconsin, which is my favorite sound that's in awesome. the world. It's that's, such that's a, a great sound. I'll put it in again mm-hmm. right here. Yeah, I'm loony for loons. I love being up there, even if I'm stepping on nails. I got to go visit the Hodag. So busy, but good, I'd say. It's a good kind of busy. It's a very fruitful one, especially with work. So today for Wild Chicago, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about Monty and Rose, the two piping plovers who have really taken the Chicago's Montrose beach line by storm. But for now, we also kind of wanted to give a little bit of a creature feature on the piping plover. Now, normally our production assistant, Elliot High, would be writing a really sick as frick creature feature for this, but we actually lucked out and we have Chris Allieri here with the NYC Plover Project 
to kind of tell us a little bit about piping plovers as well as the conservation work that he does in an urban system with these birds. So please join me in welcoming Chris Allieri. Um, Chris, if you could introduce yourself for all our guests, please, and kind of tell us a little bit about who you are and the project you work with. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to all of you for having me. It's it's a real pleasure and it's a, it's a treat, but also an honor to join your podcast. I love what you guys are doing. You're opening up the world of birds and birding to so many and um, it's so important. And um, yeah, so here I am, the founder of the NYC Plover Project. Um, if you asked me six months ago, what are you going to be doing this summer? Um, this probably wasn't on the list, but um, sometimes things happen in your life and they choose you. I was out on the beach in March and um, I love being at the beach in New York City in the winter. And um, I uh, saw what I believe I'm going to say is the first um, arrival to New York City, the first piping plover. Now, of course, it probably wasn't. But it was definitely one of the first. Um, the plovers do start to arrive in March into early April. And um, it was just the two of us on the beach. And I have a camera with a long lens. And I was taking pictures. And um, I got a great shot of this bird with a little worm that um, she or he had gotten. And the photo just really stuck with me. And um, Later that day, I was looping around. This is at the Breezy Point Tip, which is part of the Gateway um, National Recreation Area, part of the Park Service, National Park Service. And I swung around to the other side of the Breezy Point Tip, and I was um, in an area where there was some of the fencing already up. And um, I saw a dog off leash, and I somehow channeled somebody else because I was able to have a conversation with the people that had that dog. <laughs> and yet I was furious, right? I was furious. I was dumbstruck. I was just horrified, right? That this bird that's protected by two federal laws, but more importantly is, is dwindling and um, so threatened, right? Could possibly end its days like that, right? So for me, I, I kind of was just like, you got to do something, right? And I, I know I'm sort of jumping into the origin story immediately, but um, so that was the the sort of the genesis, the spark this year. But piping plovers are a bird that sort of have been in my life, my entire life without me even realizing it. And I'm happy to, to explain that further if it's, that's of interest. Yeah. Oh, sure. absolutely. I grew up in South Jersey and... Um, the southern tip of this island where we have a house was closed every year. And in the 80s, when I was a kid, and when I believe the, the piping clover was first listed under the Endangered Species Act, um, there were a couple of pairs, like two, three, four pairs at the most that would arrive at this beach that was closed for two miles. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the word. I was probably six or seven. And that was probably the, the first time I heard endangered species. That was the first time I was introduced to an endangered species. And this was also the time when Jersey was sort of going through a bit of an environmental um, challenge, let's say, um, you know, super fun sites and the, you know, the sort of pollution, the ocean pollution and things washing up on the beaches. Like it was a pretty dark time. And from a perspective of as a young kid, I, you know, really got, you know, threw myself fully into environmental work. But, but before I did that, I was out at the beach with my dad, who um, was, you know, my inspiration for so many things, and um, mainly for my interest in birds came from him directly. So he and I were out, which we often would be, and um, a park service ranger was there with a scope and showing um, birds. And um, I saw a piping plover. And that ranger described the bird to me and what they do and where they come from and how long they stay and how they're at risk. And um, it stuck with me. And I didn't realize that until fast forward to the pandemic. <laughs> and I became a pandemic birder. I was like a birder for like five minutes. I did get a camera and some binoculars and I was out and I saw a hundred birds in New York City within a hundred days, a hundred different types of birds. And I posted them all to Instagram and I got really excited. 
But it wasn't until I was out at Fort Tilden, which is part of this Gateway National Recreation Area in New York City in Queens, that I saw several piping plovers just walking around and just arriving. And there were several dogs off leash. There were people just up on the dunes. It was it was like month two of this whole thing that we just have gone through. But I just was like looking around, like, does anyone see this? Like I've never seen a piping plover up close. I'm like, how is it possible that they're right here? They're right in front of us. They're not protected, right? And it just sort of was a wake up for me. And so what I did last season was I took a lot of pictures, I sent them to the press, but then I also just like kept emailing the park service and the city parks and all of these people and just being like, what are you doing, you know? And kind of shaking my fist at the world and that doesn't get very far, but it also isn't really the way I operate. But I knew I had to do something then, but it wasn't until this year that it was really sparked at the beginning of this season. But I saw this opportunity to do something in our beaches and I could see that the park service um, on this very, very busy popular beach, um, mainly this one beach called Fort Tilden, which is part of this uh, gateway national recreation area, where there was a lot of opportunity because there were no volunteers through the park service um, this season. Now they may have launched one for next year, but I, I also am a, a plus or a minus, but I'm, I'm very impatient. So I knew I wasn't going to wait a year. I knew yeah. that I'd rather launch something imperfectly and, you know, kind of just see where it goes, you know, maybe try to get a dozen volunteers, if that, yeah. maybe like five or six, like good friends to do it. Meanwhile, none of my friends have done it. But my <laughs> partner, uh, my partner, Sam, is is a huge uh, supporter and he is, he is very much a part of it. And um, he is getting quite good with, with Clover protection. So I'm very proud of that. Love to hear uh, that. But we have over 50 volunteers now, and um, and they're out every day. And um, oh my goodness, That's and amazing. it's been tremendous. And we've we have uh, people on the beach uh, from early in the morning till you know this time of night, and um, we have a, a a position like a a stand at the like kind of beach uh, pavilion um, on Saturdays and Sundays with uh, park service rangers, and that's been an amazing place. And um, every 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 kind of person imaginable, and it's just been a beautiful thing. Um, the one thing we have heard consistently this summer, I didn't know, and that's something yeah. I can work with, right? Like I can work with that. And um, I thought I was going to come up against like those plovers are closing my beaches, you know, like, and that is heard up and down the East Coast for sure because sure. plovers do close the beaches. I, you know, I, and I tweeted this out from the Plover Project Twitter the other day, but I said, you know, it was like, I have been following Monty and Rose and the folks around those phenomenal Plovers, you know, all this season. And the way in which the zoo took the fourth egg to incubate and brought it back, that story just like touched me. And the way in which Chicago is coming together for this pair, yeah. like New York has so much to learn and to catch up with. If so, if people say to me, like, what what do you want to do as the New York City Plover Project? And I'm not just saying this because you guys are in Chicago and you guys are going to talk more about, you know, all of this. <laughs> but it like it's literally the Monty and Rose effort because it that the way in which they've come together, they've 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 identified these birds as individuals. And that's what they are, especially when you're dealing with a population that is so small. And um, exactly how small, you know, we're talking, you know, just over 400 pairs in New York State um, and just 46 pairs in New York City. So that's under 100 piping plovers that were seen last season. And all of those pairs will attempt to mate and to nest and to, um, you know, uh, incubate and to have a brood of chicks. And, you know, just over one of four will make it. You know, so there's a really high death rate for these chicks and their threats and the climb that they have is so numerous. And, um, you know, just two weeks ago, we had, you know, six chicks on one beach from two separate clutches. One by one, they were all gone. And it's really hard. Like, it is so hard to see that. And... Um, 
these chicks have so much life in them and they're fearless. They're so tiny. They're like these little cotton balls with sticks. They weigh like less than an ice cream scoop or, you know, that's a very small scoop, but they weigh less than like two batteries. They're so, they're like five grams, six grams. And like, I don't know. I mean, like the threats are people, the threats are gulls, feral cats, you know, and the cat saying people don't want to talk about that, right? But like, it's, it's out there. And I think that with the cat thing, and with anything with predators, predation, a lot of predation is also human, right? Like there's humans driving predation in so many ways. Like if there's garbage on the beach, there's going to be more mammalian predation, there's going to be more gulls. And, you know, the same with cats, if cats are dumped in a place, you know, they don't choose to be there. There's a lot of people that care about this issue on both sides. And that's what I wanted to do with this project as well, is I wanted to create a friendly force of good, you know, a friendly, approachable, kind, you know, inclusive force of people with a friendly t-shirt, with a friendly logo. It was Andrea Gress, um, who is part of the Ontario um, Piping Plover Conservation Program with Birds Canada. And that program and Birds Canada, you know, have been a huge help for us. You know, I get great inspiration by the work they're doing in Toronto as well. You know, it, it, so it's amazing the community of people that I feel like I'm part of now um, as a founder of this organization. But more importantly, I think it's the 50 plus people that we have out as volunteers. And I mean, some people are taking two buses, three buses, plus the subway. They're biking to get there. And they all share this passion and this excitement. I mean, we're so, so grateful for like the shout outs we've gotten from like the Feminist Bird Club, Molly Adams and Feminist Bird Club and um, other folks there have put out like a couple of calls for volunteers. And we just like were inundated with these amazing, beautiful people. And um, Wild Bird Fund, of course, um, has a huge following here in the city. So they put out a few things. And, you know, New York City Audubon, New York Audubon, New York City Parks, National Park Service, they've all been really supportive of our work so far. And I think it's because, too, of our approach that we're coming in as the newbies here, you know, and I, I, I am learning so much fast and furiously about piping plovers. And I obviously care. I mean, I got choked up there. I always get choked up. But, you know, for me... I found myself late at night looking on my phone, like, where do plovers go in the winter? Like, <laughs> like I specifically, like I was scanning eBirds in like Galveston and like all of these places in Texas. Cause I was like, I'm already preparing for like when the last one leaves, like I just need to go see them, you know? I was just going to ask, you know, if, you know, you said that you started this during the pandemic, right? Like, you know, last, what was it last year you started this year? No, I started actually this year. So I started this year? like in April, May. Yeah. And I don't know, we, we started the podcast last June. So also kind of during the pandemic, like early pandemic and being able to connect with all of these organizations that have like started recently, like you with NYC Plover Project and we connected with Birdability and all of these other organizations that are relatively new, but doing such amazing work. And that's kind of why I wanted to feature you here today. If you had anything to like say to our listeners about how they can help protect piping clovers, what would you recommend to them? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really, that's a really great um, question. Um, I think, believe it or not, I think some people realize that, may not realize that piping clovers are actually, you know, there's a few different populations of them and they're not just traditional shorebirds, right? So you're gonna see them you know, in the Plains states, in the Great Lakes area, as well as the Atlantic coast from the Carolinas up to, you know, maritime Canada, and also, you know, obviously inland more with Ontario. But, you know, they are endangered in several states in Maine, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Maryland, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. They're threatened in a few other states. So Massachusetts obviously has a great population. Um, but you know, here in New York, they're very much an endangered species. So if you go to the beach, I mean, I think that people just have to realize that these fenced areas are for a reason and to stay out of them. And you know, that that probably is a no-brainer for most of your listeners, but 
I think that a lot of times people don't think that they can speak up or they think that, well, like someone else is going to deal with that. Right. And I think that the go-to for so long, for me at least, was just like speaking up me to, meant to scream at. Um, <laughs> and what I've realized is that, you know, if somebody's breaking a rule, their chances are they're not doing it to like spite the endangered birds, right? Like that is something that I've really like had this epiphany about. And I think that the reality is, is that maybe they're going in there because they don't have cell phone service or they, they have to go to the bathroom. I mean, like, that's not a good reason, period. But it's like it gives you an entry point to be like, hey, you know, what you might not know is this. Right. And so I sort of I said this on this ABC interview yesterday, but like, you know, I deputize your listeners because it's important to do this because we all can speak up because you know, human disturbance into nests or into birds, um, you know, nesting birds or chicks, whether it is piping plovers or American oyster catchers or least terns or black skimmers or other birds that are more numerous, right? Like nest disturbance is a major problem, you know, and we had a nest earlier this season, which were almost definitely, you know, it was about to hatch and there was footprints and tire tracks, not tires as in a vehicle, but like some sort of cart or something all around it and that broke my heart but made me furious all at once right so i think that you know if you live at the beach or if you live in these um you know in, in other states or you know in the lake states that chances are there's a piping plover population maybe near you right and there are other you know every one of these states has volunteer opportunities so you know so i think that there's really amazing volunteer-led efforts. And I will tell you that the volunteer efforts, and there's been studies and research on this, that stewardship of species that are very much at risk can very much help, right? And so I think that, you know, another way to do is to support these organizations financially and to make donations, you know, and I'm not making a plug for us. I would say donate to any conservation group, whatever your cause is, because chances are the conservation group needs more money, right? And so um, that's the other thing that I've realized too, is that if like you see something, like speak up, be part of the solution. You know, for me, starting this effort was not about fame or fortune. I knew that I was definitely not going to get either one of those things, but I just felt so guilty. I felt like I had to do something. Like I just could not go forward without doing something because I just... I just care so much about these birds and I, they, they deserve it. You know, they deserve better than what they're getting. This is as much about a long term, a long haul, but it isn't, it isn't, right? It is a long haul, it is a longer education, but there also needs to be the urgency of protection because with endangered species, you don't have, you don't have time, you know? And um, the challenges in the, the uphill climb that they face is so numerous. And so if folks go to our, our Instagram or our Twitter, NYC Plover Project, like you're gonna see like pictures that we put up of, of these birds and they're all they're they're all the birds on the beaches in, in New York City. You know, for me, plovers are a big deal, but you know, my goal too, and I know the goal of all of us in this in this project is that you know, this this helps the American oyster catcher. This helps the least tern, the common tern. Um, this helps the black skimmer, which is also, you know, very much at risk. So, you know, I think that um, uh, we will, you know, work with other species, of course. But, you know, for us, we've got to help these plovers in New York. That's such a beautiful culmination story. And um, we're looking at such a beautiful story happening right now at the start of the NYC Plover Project. Um. We're running out of time a little bit. So before we go, you already kind of plugged your social media already. But what I also will ask, is there any other things, any resources or any other places that you'd like to direct our listeners to where maybe they can get involved with Plovers that you can think of or get to know you a little bit better or your organization at all? Yeah, yeah definitely. So um, thank you so much. This has been such a treat and so much fun. Uh, for us, it's nycploverproject.org. And on Instagram, it's NYC Plover Project. And on Twitter, NYC Plover. 
I would say a good first step is Audubon. I mean, Audubon, whether at your state or local chapter or your national chapter or online, you're going to see some great information there. Um, also Cornell, um, Cornell, um, the, the paid, the paid service one, um, it has a really lengthy, uh, description. And then, you know, there's some amazing Plover researchers like Virginia Tech Shorebird, um, program. Um, they do, they're doing some uh, great Plover research actually in Fire Island in New York. Um, and, um, they're, they're phenomenal. And, um, you know, also, so there's a lot of information out there. And, um, you know, I think that for your listeners in Chicago, I've been so excited to see the press coverage of Monty and Rose. It is truly outstanding. And um, the way in which a city like Chicago can come together. And I mean, I literally am thinking about those four chicks up at, like I am up at night wor worrying about them. Like I want to see a hundred percent success there. And they've, they've inspired so many people. I am, what gives me hope is the interactions that we had this summer that we've had so far. We're not over yet, but the interactions we've had so far with the young people, they're just, it's like another level. It's amazing. The best questions come from kids, like hands yeah. down. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We, we couldn't agree more. I think all yeah. of us have have this background of working with young people in conservation. So yeah. we definitely yeah. could not agree with you that. Know, and, and like the adults are always like, there's one of these on my friend's beach. Like it's always that. Like it's never mm -hmm. like it's right. never like a question. Yeah. yeah. Like I know a guy who once like saw a plover. Like it's never interesting. <laughs> we do get a couple adult questions that are good, but it's it's nothing as like the young people's questions. Mm -hmm. Like it's like how much do they weigh? Like why do they migrate? Um how long do they live? How do they pick where they go in the winter? How do they pick? How do they know how to get here? I mean, I don't know most of the answers, and so that's that's the thing. Too, you didn't read too much on the the biology, but um. <laughs> well, it's that air of fascination that we love to hit upon at the Birdie Bunch podcast. Thank you so much, listeners. Everyone, please give Chris Allieri of the NYC Plover Project a big thank you. Um, there's been a lot of nature in the news recently, so let's kind of cut it now to current events. Thanks again for being a guest on the pod, Chris. Really appreciated you reaching out, and we're just super, super fortunate to have such a uh, such a great guest with such a great line of work. Um, so the current event that I've brought to the table is Chicago themed, and I'm pretty excited to talk about it too. So back, um, I'd say it was about a year ago. It was 2020 that started. Um, there was a project outlined in Douglas Park, which is a historically really important park in. Uh, the housing districts of Chicago, so not really the city and stuff like that. And Douglas Park is a place that is a really culturally important community center for a lot of communities in Chicago. And so it kind of had gone on the wayside a little bit. I know there's been a lot of history with reclaiming it. Um, used to be named Douglas Park for a guy that owned slaves. And then what they did was they added an S to the end of Douglas and made it about Frederick Douglas, which I think is an incredible thing to kind of reclaim it and make it more culturally pertinent and important to the city of Chicago. So this is a place that's been up and coming for a while, really big community center. And they're also installing now in the historic North Lawndale area, a mini golf course called the Douglas 18. Now, this place, I'm bringing it up now because it will be opening in August 7th. It's been about, I'd say, a good year of work. It's what it sounds like. And basically, the Douglas 18 is a mini golf course that is revolving around birds. So each hole is bird and bird conservation related based on a specific bird that a different person worked on, like researched and worked on and put together. It memorializes a lot of native birds. So you've got holes based on, you know, the yellow warbler and Cooper's hawks, American tree sparrows, ring-billed gulls, all things that you can see in Chicago with personally the coolest one in my eyes being the black-crowned night heron, which we'll bring up in a little bit. But it's such a cool, cool way that's gotten teenagers involved. It was all teenagers who did the planning and the designing and the constructing. It looks great. It's going to be amazing. And I think the best thing about it is there's so many ways to memorialize nature and to emphasize nature in 
urban environments. And this is just one really special way. You know, people come to a mini golf course and imagine leaving a mini golf course, learning something. It's such a cool operation that's been going on. Picked up a lot of traction on social media, interacted with them a couple of times. It's a great group. Um, Lincoln Park Zoo has been really, really important and instrumental in this event. And so if you would like to join them for their grand opening, you can check out douglas18.eventbrite.com or you can just go to their Instagram profile, the Douglas 18, and you can reserve your spot to go on that first day. Really incredible thing that's going on. I'm super excited about it. You might see me there. I'd like to be there. I know I'm going out of town like the day after, so we'll see, but I would love to be there. I think it's an incredible thing that's happening. Yeah, I'm super excited about it too. My birthday is just after that. My birthday is on the 10th of August, so I'm really hoping if if it's not like overwhelmingly busy, I would love to go there for my birthday because I've been super stoked. I've been following all their stuff on Instagram. Yeah. I am unbelievably excited for the Douglas 18, so thanks for sharing that, Matt. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so for my current event, uh, it is an article from the Natural History Museum in the UK, and it's titled, First Ever DNA Recovered from Extinct Miniature Elephants of Sicily. So over the past few hundreds of thousands of years, Sicily was home to two different miniature elephants. Now, for the first time, researchers have been able to extract and delve into the DNA of one of these extinct elephants, helping to show how the largest land mammal shrank by at least 8,000 kilograms to become one of the smallest elephants ever known. The tiny elephants that were once found in Sicily, which is right off the boot of Italy, were some of the smallest elephants to have ever existed. But quite extraordinarily, they descend from one of the biggest land mammals to have ever lived, the straight-tusked elephant. Those animals were genuine giants, with some individuals reaching over 14 and a half feet tall and tipping the scale at over 14 tons. An adult straight-tusked elephant could have very easily rested its chin on the back of an African savanna elephant. But researchers are revealing that it took a surprisingly short period of time for this miniaturization to occur, perhaps just only 40 generations, for the huge ancestors to shrink into the tiny islanders. The change in this size over this amount of time would have been the equivalent of a, an adult human shrinking to the size of a macaque monkey. This is largely due to the scientists were able to extract and sequence DNA from a petuous bone, which is a small and dense bone found in the base of a skull, and one that's renowned for preserving ancient DNA. The results have shown that the straight-tusked elephant lineage that led to those tiny elephants on Sicily actually split from German elephants around 400,000 years ago. And even though these miniature elephants are thought to have only been isolated on Sicily within the last 200,000 years. This is really intriguing because it suggests that there's a gap between those dates, and there was something interesting going on with the populations of these giant herbivores within continental Europe, perhaps a divide between those living in the north and the south. The fact that this team managed to extract you know, DNA from these fossils in Sicily means that it will hopefully open up things to be done for other fossils from Italy, from the rest of Southern Europe, and potentially those from Africa. Getting ancient DNA from fossil elephants inhabiting the Mediterranean fringes offers hope that scientists might crack the puzzle to the complex history of elephants all over the globe. My goodness, that's really sick. I mean, it's so easy to not think of elephants being associated with Italy. I always kind of forget about that. So this yeah, is a right? super cool... It's like, what? It's, you know, you, you got your elephant and your pasta. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> Slurping up the noodles with its trunk. <laughs> elephant lasagna, you know. Elephant lasagna. <laughs> oh, goodness. I, this is just fascinating. I mean, science is so fascinating. It's really cool to constantly see all the incredible things that come out from science. It's super cool. Totally. Well, with that, I'd say we can probably move on to our main topic. Sweet Home, Wild Chicago. 
Now, when we think of a jungle, we're usually taught to think of the color green and of vast expanses of untouched land, dense plant cover, and vines tickling your shoulders as they hang from the canopies and above. They're really places of biodiversity up the wazoo, of bird songs and creepy bugs and choruses of breeding frogs. There's another kind of jungle, though, that hosts this kind of wonderful biodiversity, and that's the concrete jungle. That's right, swap the green for gray and put up a bunch of windows and somehow you're still host to some of the coolest environments that the world has to offer. You ain't got to travel days into the woods or fly halfway across the world to find some really lovely flora and fauna. No matter where you are, you can always start by looking out your rear view window. Now, hopefully this is the start of a series of episodes featuring urban environments and ecosystems in order to highlight some of the sick biodiversity that pops up in cities. But for now, though, let's take it in our very own backyard. Because today we're talking about, like I said, Wild Chicago. Now, before we begin, I should lead with this. I'm really not technically from Chicago, so don't come at me. You know, a lot of people in college were mad about that. I'm a suburbanite. But that said, I think I can also say that my time in the area has been pretty fruitful as far as learning of some of the amazing places to see wildlife. And I've learned a thing or two about the city in doing so. Chicago is the largest city in the state of Illinois and the third most populous in the United States. It's also a city with a really rich history, and it has a lot of what I would consider to be a swagger about it. From Al Capone and the Cubs versus Sox debate to Jordan and beef, dipped preferably, and the world's best pizza and chance to bear down, Chicago is a city that quite simply is like none other. Now, to most, it's known for all these things, as well as tourist sites like the Magnificent Mile, the Bean, the Sears Tower, not the Willis, and its architectural tours upon boat. But to the people who call Chicago home, some of the coolest sights the city has to offer replace those bleacher seats with magic hedges and the Blackhawks with black-crowned night herons. Chicago's native wildlife is just as rich as its deep-dish pizza, and that right there is what we're going to talk today. So if you're a wildlife fan and would also like to take a trip to Chicago, you might just want to stick around and maybe even take some notes because we might be featuring your next vacation destination. Before we start our journey... I'd like to acknowledge quickly that Chicago is situated on the homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Adawa tribes. All of this land and nature was present long before America was even founded or even a thought, so it's important to us to recognize the stewardship that was done then as the first ever conservationists, as well as recognize that indigenous cultures and people still fight to preserve this land in modern times. Now to begin our trip to the Windy City, we're actually headed to the beach, you see, Chicago's lakefront is situated upon the shores of Lake Michigan, one of the five great lakes that were carved out by receding glaciers at the end of the last ice age. The result of that glacial activity is a lot of crazy and cool landforms, but also a lake so large that it looks like an ocean from its shores, and is estimated to hold 1.3 quadrillion gallons of water. Now for those wondering, that's 13 with 14 zeros behind it. A lot of Chicago attractions border the lakefront because, well, there's a lot of lakefront, like Navy Pier and many of their museums, but the crown jewel of the shoreline is much further north than that. It also just so happens to be a crown jewel in the eyes of North American birders. Montrose Point Bird Sanctuary, located next to Montrose Beach and just a couple blocks from Wrigley Field, is home to state-of-the-art birding as well as a pair of local celebrities. Montrose Point, historically, actually began with the military. Around the 50s, the Army leased land in Montrose Point to put up two barracks and honeysuckle hedges were planted to disguise them from outside eyes. Once the Army left, though, these hedges showed to be highly trafficked by birds, particularly migratory ones like everyone's favorite, warblers, since this is the last point for many birds to fuel up before making their big ol' hop across Lake Michigan to their breeding grounds. Now, with that in mind, ecological restoration began in the 80s to plant native plants alongside the honeysuckle, which is an invasive species. Now, Montrose Point is one of the premier birding spots in Chicago and Illinois, and even potentially the Midwest and even the country. It's gained that much notoriety. No stranger to this fame is Monty and Rose, the pair of piping plovers that showed up on the Montrose Dunes in 2019, the first pair the state had ever had in over 50 years. And Chicago bird groups and volunteers really quickly made sure there was a home for them, even going so far as to close beaches they were nesting on from foot traffic, beachgoers, and even shut down a music festival set to be there. 
They've reared multiple chicks successfully, with one named Nish having even started his own groundbreaking nest on the shores of Lake Erie in Toledo, Ohio. The first nest in that nook of the woods in over 80 years. Their local celebrity status has now spawned multiple documentaries by filmmaker Bob Dolgan and is the premier piping plover conservation story in the Midwest. Now, one really instrumental group in a lot of local conservation that we've talked about already in this episode with the Douglas 18 is the Lincoln Park Zoo. Yeah, yeah. Like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Lincoln Park Zoo was really instrumental in helping Monty and Rose this season in rearing that fourth chick. They got that fourth chick hatched and they put it out there and it's now chilling with the rest of them. As of right mm-hmm. now, all four chicks are still okay. Yeah, it's just really, really exciting. It's very, very exciting, as you've probably heard from our guest creature featureist, too, because Chris Allieri knows a lot about what it's like to have chicks and maybe even lose them. That's mm-hmm. a very real possibility in urban wildlife. Totally. Um, Lincoln Park Zoo, also really, really well-renowned for some of their other conservation programs with yeah endangered birds including the black crowned night heron now the black crowned night heron is a really really awesome bird but it's also in the confines of the lincoln park zoo they actually have the largest black crowned night heron rookery in the whole state of illinois and that being a state endangered species is a really really important part of this whole conservation story that we're talking about because just like the piping plovers you're finding birds that are so rare across the whole state and like numbering the hundreds, the two hundreds just in the middle of the city. And that is something that I think most people don't really think about when they think about cityscapes and urban wildlife. Yeah. I I was, I was literally just thinking about the black right here a couple of weeks ago and there, I think the, the Lincoln park rookery, I think has over 250 close to 300 black right herons counted this year, which is wild. Yeah, yeah, it's especially for such a situated in like Lincoln Park Zoo. For those who haven't been there, it is literally like you are walking through the city. You hit the sidewalk and the sidewalk just runs straight through the zoo. Like, I mean, I mean, not right now, currently because of COVID, because they're still numbering who can be in there. But normally in like a normal season, like the only thing you got to pay for to get there is parking. Yeah, if you're just walking through the park, you are basically just walking through the zoo at the same time yeah it is really really exciting and it's even more exciting that you can just be walking by and there can be 200 plus of this endangered species just chilling above your head you wouldn't even know yeah it is (laughs) i have not made it out there yet to see it my time as a birder has been spent mainly in ohio as well as like places near my home it's always been a dream of mine to go there, though, and check that out. There's a lot of heron rookeries even in the suburbs, but nothing quite like a black crown night heron rookery. But I think another thing that's really important, too, about the Lincoln Park Zoo is it creates a lot of access for people mm. who don't normally have access to STEM and conservation and specifically animal-related experiences. Even yeah. more so, you foster this appreciation, this love for this kind of stuff. I mean, we've got teens in... Douglas Park making a bird-related <laughs> mini golf course. Yeah, I mean, we had a bunch of teens last week. I, I, if people have listened to last week's episode. We were speaking at the Teen Conservation Leadership Conference. Mm-hmm. There were a ton of teens who like came to came to see us speak and talk about conservation and interpreting through the pandemic. And I think we talked about it then. And so you, again, highly recommend going back to listen to that. Oh yeah, but conservation has never been more accessible than it is right now. Mm-hmm. It, it has never been more accessible, and especially in the cities where conservation feels so distant you really do have access to it when you break things down Mm -hmm. chicago is a really beautiful example of having all of these green spaces in this concrete jungle because there are so many beautiful 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 spots where all of these birds go all of these you know mammals go all of these reptiles go we get a bunch of crazy animals here that people just don't think that exist I was on a hike this morning, like I mentioned, the the person we were like who was guiding us, they were saying they saw a mink once try to pull this like giant fish out of the water, or another one that was like eating a muskrat. Yeah, just like buggers. I don't. People didn't. I didn't even know that mink were here. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so, we get a lot of crazy wildlife here, and 
exposing people to that is a really key part of kind of what we're doing and also something that you can try and do as a nature lover mm -hmm. get people engaged in nature anywhere that you are conservation is everywhere like we talked about with the piping plovers like we talked about with the black crown night errands yeah another really awesome example of some chicago conservation is with one of my favorite species on the planet the blandings turtle <laughs> yep so the Blanding's turtle is a really cool species. It is a species of turtle, like I mentioned, and it has this really beautiful, like, yellow underbelly. Mm -hmm. And they are, uh, like, critically endangered in the state of Illinois, I think. They're, like, yeah. crazy, crazy endangered. They're scary low numbers. Oh, yeah. Because of that, multiple organizations are working together to improve numbers for the Blanding's turtle. So I don't have any research pulled up right now about the Blanding's turtle project, I know Cosley Zoo is a part of it. I know Brookfield Zoo is a part of it, the Chicago Zoological Society. I know Will County, DuPage County, and Cook County are all a part of it. Mm -hmm. So all of those counties, forest preserves. And basically all of these groups are working together to increase numbers for planting turtles. What they're doing is they're taking eggs. They are hatching them. They are like basically speed growing them like in captivity until mm -hmm. they're a couple years old. And then they're like releasing them. And by speed growing, what I mean by that is turtles take a really long time to get to maturity because they're turtles, they live forever. <laughs> yeah. And basically what they'll do, in the winter, turtles normally have to brumate. So they basically just skip the brumation process every single year. Oh. And they just grow constantly throughout the year. So what would take five years to mature now takes two and a half. That's, first of all, smart. Second yeah. of all, incredible. That's so cool. Yeah, so then after they kind of graduate from this, like, speed-growing process, <laughs> they will go to, like, a, a small uh, area that's monitored very, very closely. So they can still, like, they can basically just practice being wild. And then once they get to full size, like their adult size, then what they're able to do is they're able to be released. And it's really, really exciting to see these Blandings turtles thrive mm -hmm. when a species is so threatened. Yeah, those kind of conservation initiatives are happening right in like our backyard. It is so cool to see. Oh, there's a lot of organizations that aren't necessarily like wild animal organizations like Lincoln Park Zoo, right? I'm like, that's a zoo. It's not like a nature preserve. Like it's a zoo and all those animals are important to getting kids to love animals even in their backyard too. But they do amazing conservation work and some other organizations in Chicago that do amazing conservation work locally um can be found just down the lakefront um past navy pier on the museum campus the museum campus is pretty widely renowned actually we have some of the country's best museums in general um you can find there's the art museum there's the adler planetarium and then the on that little museum. yeah that little peninsula houses the field museum and the shed aquarium as well the museum campus is home to some other really really amazing conservation initiatives both in the education as well as just like actual like field conservation that a lot of people don't think about when they walk in there field museum in particular has a really great monarch butterfly program that works both as like a stewardship program they're trying to get monarch butterfly stewards that can go out into remote local communities and work with them but also growing the eggs they're making sure that all of them survive and make it back on their migration south and that not only does field work and does really great like maintaining populations but now you've got people learning from them too and like taking that and bringing that back to their communities and allowing them to do it themselves and that's what's so beautiful about these urban systems is that they're always set up these conservation initiatives to where you don't have to go there every single time to do it you can take what you learn bring it back to where you are and then your community can thrive around that specific thing. It's really, truly incredible. Yeah, on that same note, I don't know if the Field Museum still has this exhibit, but I know they've exhibited this in the past, a bunch of research on peregrine falcons. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so Chicago has a pretty large peregrine falcon um, population, which I feel like a lot of people might not know. Yeah. And the Field Museum was doing a lot of research on like bird collisions and stuff because that affects what the peregrine falcons can eat if there's less birds. So... They were, they had this whole exhibit just educating people about parrot and falcons, why they're so, like, it was a really fascinating exhibit. And a key part of local conservation is education. 
we talk about it all the time, right? We even mentioned it in this episode. You know, people want to care about conservation, but when the face of conservation is these big species like elephants or lions, you're not thinking about the yeah. Blanding's turtle or <laughs> the peregrine falcon, the peregrine falcon or the black crown night heron. You're not thinking of these species. You are thinking of these species. Oh, elephants are in Africa. That's where conservation needs to happen. Not in my own backyard. Mm hmm. It's um, you, you bring up the peregrine story and the peregrine story is very fascinating because the conservation work that they did with those birds is like super sick. You know, the technically in their range, you know, peregrines were part of this larger range. And so there's a lot of subspecies and we had lost our subspecies. So what they did was they took a bunch of different other subspecies, bred them together to bring back what would be most likely biologically the same to that subspecies we lost and reintroduce them and like the the results have been kind of kind of bomb like peregrines in chicago people will see them in their high rises peregrines they thrive off these rock pigeon populations which rock pigeons pop up in urban scapes because historically where they live out east in the old world they lived in cliff and rocky cliff faces so what's the best comparison to that in the you know in the cityscape it's the it's the buildings so that's why they those peregrines is a big reason why they've been surviving as well and you know what that's like one thing where like chicago is like a modified ecosystem for what it would historically be but it works and it works really beautifully and like when we seek to preserve that instead of tear everything down and put in like what it used to be it speaks volumes for itself especially like with that current event that CJ brought, I believe, two episodes ago about the bison bridge that is being proposed to be put in in the cryptid episode. That's not historically, it's not a tall grass prairie anymore, but you don't have to only focus your efforts upon what is completely native and natural. If conservation was only focused on places like Medewin, tall grass prairie, or if it was only focused on places that are specifically untouched, we wouldn't save a single species. That just is not possible if we were to only revolve around the National Park Service. So when you take conservation and you adapt it to every single place that you are trying to save, including Chicago with peregrines and blanding turtles and monarch butterflies and all these species that call this place home, when you adapt it, you can overcome extinction. And that's what we're seeing in Chicago so well, even for the piping plovers. And it's really, truly just world-class. It's world-class and it's incredible. One of the really cool things about some of these places in these urban scapes, especially I'm going to use Shed Aquarium as an example, is that you get a lot of field conservation in your backyard. Shed does great great lakes monitoring they do a lot of work monitoring water quality changes in temperature how climate is affecting as well as like different species you know zebra mussel conservation not conserving them but like removing the invasive as well as work with sea lampreys and invasives and that stuff that's really important to the shed's mission and like you know working in their backyards but with these world-class places like the shed and the field and you know lincoln park zoo and all that you also get conservation that goes out into the world too so Shed Aquarium not only leads initiatives in our backyard, leads initiatives in the Caribbean as well with the black tip reef shark. And so when you get that worldly view, you know, these places become really important and your dollars, you know, that's a big thing. Your money, when you go to places like this, when you're in the city, when you're being a tourist, you walk into the Shed Aquarium, your money goes to conservation. You're conserving in your backyard. You're conserving other people's backyards. And that's all focused in these cityscapes, you don't find these major aquariums, these major institutions popping up in the suburbs. You certainly don't see them popping up in like agriculture fields. And that's not to complain about any of these things. It's just like, this is an important part of the cityscape. And so when you highlight that, it becomes really important in preserving these institutions and making sure that they get the money and the funding that they need, getting the numbers that they need, for so many different people that rely on them. And that's not just to say that there's not a lot of other less trafficked places that aren't necessarily tourist attractions that Chicago is super important with as well. The Cook County Forest Preserve 
is one of the most highly developed forest preserves in the state of Illinois. It is truly like it's inspiring. Their use of urban spaces and urban lots is particularly incredible. Urban lots being vacant lots that are oftentimes just grass. And what they'll do is they'll go and reclaim those lots and they'll make them into little environments. And that's why, as CJ mentioned before, how Chicago has such great little spots of greenery spotted throughout the city. Like, that's why, because we have such a fundamental desire in Chicago for preserving, protecting, and conserving. Couldn't I said it better, Matt? That was fantastic. I, I mean, I I think we're kind of wrapping up on time for this episode. Mm-hmm. And, but we've had such a fun conversation about this today. And I really hope that you've learned something new. Um, because cityscapes are wild as much as you may think that they are not. Maybe both in terms of personality and wildlife. <laughs> yep. But, know. you know, you can definitely learn some new things about conservation and nature anywhere you go. Mm-hmm. So the plan is to make this a continuing series. So if you really enjoy this episode, let us know. If you're like Matt and CJ should continue to talk about wild places, let us know. We love doing this. So we hope you love doing this too. But that, that'll wrap up this episode. Anything else, Matt? Yeah, I mean... If you'd like to check out, maybe I can put together a list of some of the most highly trafficked okay. forest preserves in Chicago, especially because I know Labau Woods will be one that's of them. Montrose Point. That's where yep. I was this morning was Labau Woods. You were in Labau Woods again. That's where the hummingbird was. I know. I got my 200th bird there. Red-shouldered hawk. That's Yeah, that's really good. And that's, you know what? CJ's gotten 200 birds only in the city of Chicago or the suburbs, but like only in Chicago. And in Australia. Okay, I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, and that's just to, goes to show how incredible this stuff is. So like, if you this, would this like. This year, I'm at, I think I'm at 170 birds, which mm-hmm. is only in the city of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, it's important for so many things aside from birds, but we love to use that metric because it's something that we can measure directly. But yeah, if you would like those, you know, I will be putting together a list of, I'll say maybe the top five like forest reserves. So not stuff you'd have to spend money on to go to. If you want to go check out Montrose Dunes, a little bit of information, an address, yeah, I, an address would I be can, a great I can just thing. give recommendations too. I've been mm-hmm. to tons of places all over the city. Uh, there's places in the suburbs. So if you come to Chicago, if you're from Chicago and you really love being outside, there are places to be outside here. Mm-hmm. Because everywhere you go, the outside experience is going to be different. Yeah. So, like, if you're in New York and you're like, well, I'm coming to Chicago, do I really want to go, like, into a forest preserve? Y- y- honestly, I recommend it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you really do. Chicago Forest Preserves, Cook County does such a good job. They really do. It's amazing. Anyway. Yeah, but that just about wraps it up. So, let's head into this last little thing that we do all the time, and that's the social media so cj where can people find you on the gram or wherever you're found you can officially find me at cj.greco oh you're back exciting. i'm back you're i was back. back last week too i was back last week too but i oh, was alone really? in the studio last week mm-hmm. i was alone in the studio last week <laughs> oops, oops. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then you can find me at matt valiga that's m-a-t-t-v is in victor a-l-i-g-a on the instagram as well in addition, if you'd like to connect with us as an entity on the Instagram, you can go find us at the Birdie Bunch Podcast on Instagram, and we'll be posting daily stuff, updates, merch drops. Um, we post our little song and dance, you know, the cut clips and new episodes and teasers. So make sure to check us out there as well as on our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. Speaking of merch, yeah, we've got some fun stuff ahead like i mentioned at the top of the episode we've got something that's in the works with bob dolgan the guy i mentioned who currently does not only the first monty and rose documentary but now the second one that'll be dropping early september so keep your eyes on out for that you'll see it on the instagram like i mentioned and we will keep you updated on that but that'll be a great donation to a great cause that he is spearheading creating bird conservation education within chicago and other cities and great lakes areas in general it's a really cool thing that we've been talking about so when i have more details you all will know if you have any critiques or anything like that and you can also leave a review on apple podcasts um, if you leave a five-star review we'll read it out we haven't had a review in a really really long time and we appreciate the critiques and the feedback so make sure if you'd like you can get involved with us with us in that way 
You can also help us out by just telling a friend, you know, especially my uh, Chicagoland uh, friends and family out there right now. You probably learned something new about your very own backyard today. And if you did, share that with your mom, your dad, your, your aunt, your uncle, you know, those people who live in Chicago who might not know all this stuff, you know. You might just tell someone who wants to go to Labau Woods and was looking for a green space to go to but didn't know where to go or, you know, a place to visit in Chicago that's not necessarily amassed with humans, you know. So share it with a friend, you know. Let them know. We're preaching and we love it. So definitely share this information with them too. We love spreading the word. So that kind of wraps up this episode. If you'd like to learn more, like I said, check out our Instagram and we'll be here. You know, thanks for checking us out with another episode and this one talking about our sweet home, Chicago. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for sharing your day with us and listening to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would specifically like to thank Sarah Dunlap for creating our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.